I don't know if you've heard, but some people have declared that 2016 is the worst year ever. And I don't know. I think it's probably an overstatement. Uh, but when the, the year can be summed up with the word Trump, uh, you know it's pretty bad. Uh, and, and beyond this mere demagogue, uh, this year we've lost uh, significant artists. We've faced political shifts globally. And I'm not just talking about America. I'm talking about Brexit. I'm talking about uh, the atrocities that are happening in the Philippines and all around the world. Uh, we've continued to witness injustice for minorities in America. Uh, terrorist attacks have continued around the world. Uh, we've passed what is called the tipping point uh, uh, and, and the, the point of no return for climate change reversal. Uh, we're watching a worsening humanitarian crisis in Aleppo, along with the largest population of refugees the world has ever known. That's 2016. And we thought the world was supposed to be getting better. We are, we're wondering, could it get any worse? You know, and when I read opinion columns, when I read the newspapers, it seems like optimism is waning at this point, and rightly so. You know, optimism is self-empowered, and turmoil and unrest and tension and uncertainty, only hope can endure in their midst. Because hope, it's not self-empowered. Hope is birthed by the Spirit of God. And so as our year comes to a close, as we draw closer to the great remembrance of Christ's birth, I want to address this deep sense of uncertainty that many of you have expressed to me and that many of us are feeling. Uncertainty about the future, uncertainty about a world that is feeling more and more unstable. And this gives us all the more reason to re-anchor ourselves in our hope, a hope that St. Paul says will not disappoint. And so our passage this morning uh, from 2 Kings chapter 22 and chapter 23, uh, we meet Josiah. And he, before he was born, we encountered Manasseh. And we don't have time to look at his life in its entirety, but Manasseh was the worst of the worst kings of Israel. We're told that he caused Israel to sin worse than the nations that occupied the land before them. And if you've read the book of Judges, you know that the nations that occupied the land before Israel were awful. And yet Manasseh made Israel to sin worse than these nations. Israel became the worst nation in terms of corruption and evil under his reign. But when it seemed like things could get no worse, when it seemed like the day could get no darker, Josiah shines brightly. Kings actually presents King Josiah as the best king of Israel ever, even better than David even better than his grandfather Hezekiah, who we looked at last week. 2 Kings 23-25 puts it this way, Before Josiah, there was no king like him, nor did any like him arise after him. So here we are looking at the best of the best, and yet there's this curious tension in his reign. Why did the best king of Israel come at the worst moment of Israel's history? In fact, he will be the very last good king before God sends Israel into exile. And despite all the good he does, all the societal reform he brings about, he cannot turn the tides of history. God still judges Israel. God still sends them uh, into exile. If he can't turn it around, if the very best of the best political leaders can't turn it around, what hope is there? But Josiah's presence among, among this uh, tension and turmoil, the unrest of the world, 
It shines brightly because he points us beyond. He points us away from him to a greater hope. He gives Israel, he gives the world, he gives us hope, even if we're careening off a cliff. Josiah shows us that even if our lives can't change everything around us, how we live still matters immensely. And so as we look at his life, I want to look at one big idea this morning, and this is the big idea. Our hope is that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Our hope is that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And this reality, when it gets into your soul, will change how you live. So, since Josiah's life takes place over two chapters, uh, I'm not going to reread everything in those chapters, but I want to encourage you to read those chapters in their entirety in the week to come. But for now, let's begin in 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, uh, like President Trump, and he reigned uh, 31 years in Jerusalem. And that will be the last political job, I promise. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Every introduction to a king in this book starts with a little summary of the king's life. And what we discover from the get-go about Josiah is that he was a king of integrity and goodness. He sought the well-being of all people. He did not stray to the left or to the right, which is a scriptural way of saying that he followed God closely without deviating from the path. And that's the setup. Now, the first act of Josiah is recorded for us in verses 3 through 10 of this chapter. Josiah, he wants to repair the temple, the temple of God, had fallen into disarray, and so he wants a project of physical restoration. And we have to see that in these verses, there's no mention of spiritual renewal in the temple or in the nation that's on his heart. He just wants to see the temple made beautiful again. He just wants to see it restored. But during this work, we're told in verse 8 that Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And this is strange. How could the book of the law be misplaced to begin with? You know, this wasn't an ordinary book. This was a God-inspired book. How do you misplace it? How long was it lost? And Kings doesn't give us these answers. But given the previous reign of Manasseh, we can assume it was lost for at least a generation. And given Manasseh's track record, we can also assume the book was not accidentally misplaced, but purposefully neglected. After all, if you want to lead a nation astray, if you want to lead them wherever you see fit, the first thing you need to do is remove any sense of moral, objective truth. Let everyone do what is right in their own eyes, and then you can lead by what's doing right in your own eyes as well. Hence the removal of the law during Manasseh's reign. Moral relativism can take its place. And while abandoning objective truth can be problematic, can't the rediscovery of the book of the law be just as problematic? Do we really want a political leader leveraging God's law to stand on moral high ground? The movie, uh, The Book of Eli, has anyone seen this movie? <laughs> Derek liked it. Uh, it's an inter interesting reflection on this tension. 
It takes place in a post-apocalyptic world uh, where chaos and violence reign. And Gary Oldman uh, plays this guy Carnegie. He's a bad guy, corrupt leader, who is violently seeking after the uh, the main character, uh, Eli, who's played by Denzel Washington. And Eli has this book, and Carnegie wants this book. And destruction is ensuing, and people are dying. And at some point, his goons are like, dude, like, why do you want this book so bad? Is it really worth it? And Carnegie explodes, and he says this. It's not a book, it's a weapon. A weapon aimed right at the hearts and minds of the weak and the desperate. It will give us control of them. If we want to rule more than one small town, we have to have it. People will come from all over. They'll do exactly what I tell them if the words are from the book. It's happened before and it'll happen again. All we need is that book. Spoiler alert, the book is the Bible. And we don't have to search long or hard throughout history to find examples of politicians or world leaders or even governments exploiting the Bible for their own gain. We feel cautious at the idea of the Bible being put back in the state because the Bible has been and can be used as a weapon. And when 80% of voters who self-identify as evangelical voted for someone like Trump, we can start to question the Bible's helpfulness in the public realm. Rather than creating moral clarity, it seems to be used as a weapon for fear-mongering. And perhaps then it is better lost when it comes to politics. Perhaps it is better that the temple misplaced it altogether. But before we come to any rash conclusions like that, let's look more closely at Josiah. Because Josiah shows us two things. First, we must recover moral objective truth. If we're really going to live in light of who God is, there must be truth about what God desires. There has to be standards for conduct and living that God has for us. Morality, then, cannot solely be subjective to each person's individual experience or social context or desires. What is truly right and wrong, in other words, cannot just be in the eye of the beholder. But on top of this, Josiah shows us a radically different way of responding to God's truth. He doesn't make it into a weapon. He doesn't leverage it for his own gain. That's not its purpose. He could have gone that route, but he doesn't. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is that often people don't come under it and listen to it well enough. Because God's law is meant to be a gift that brings life. But when it does, it also reveals the shadows of our heart and society. So let's go back to the story. During the reconstruction, the book of the law, it's rediscovered. The secretary of Josiah brings it to him. And look at the response. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The king's reaction is not, great, how can we use this book to gain control over the masses? He tears his clothes. It's, 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 he's convicted to the core. He's guilty. This is the classical way of showing deep sorrow and grief. You see, Josiah, he started out wanting to rebuild the temple. He just wanted to make it beautiful again. But then they accidentally rediscover the law and they find a truth beyond themselves, a truth they didn't construct for themselves. And Josiah suddenly realizes that an entirely different sort of reform is necessary. Prior to this moment, if you asked Josiah, hey, 
how's everything going in the land of Israel? He would have likely said, you know, not great. There's some room for improvement. He knew there were problems. He could probably point them out. But hypothetically speaking, if wearing socks was morally objectionable, putting aside that in some instances, like in bed or with sandals it is, uh, how could we ever know as a society? We all wear socks. No one would ever question wearing socks. You know, we would need a voice from outside of our framework to critique the sock problem and expose it for the problem that it is. We would never see it on our own that our normal is actually abnormal. You see, when your normal is abnormal and everyone sees it that way, you need a voice from outside of your culture and time and place to speak into those realities. And what we see in this passage, it's only by recovering the law of God that a voice spoke from outside Josiah's framework and perspective, a voice that could challenge him and critique the things he didn't see because he was so accustomed to them being the norm. This is why God revealing who he is through his law, which brings uh, a picture into a culture of life and a greater clarity into what a culture of death looks like, is so important. The law of God is not meant to exploit or oppress people, but to expose patterns that point us towards a culture of death and to teach us how we can be liberated into a culture of life. But right now, Josiah, he's only feeling exposed. He hears the book of the law read and he says, good Lord, look at all the things that have gone astray. Look at all the things that have gone wrong. We are in serious trouble. We have not done what is right in the sight of the Lord. So here's what Josiah does. He says in verse 13, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judea concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Some quick Bible history for you. The law of God came through a prophet, Moses. And the law and the prophets, they go inseparably hand in hand. When the law is rediscovered then, Josiah realizes that the prophetic voice also needs to be restored. Josiah gets this. And so a delegation goes out on behalf of the king to track down a prophet. But he doesn't just find any prophet. I love this little detail. He finds a prophetess. In a time when patriarchy was the norm, when there were male prophets abounding in Israel's history, God speaks through a woman named Huldah. And God responds through Huldah with two things for Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, one of the kings. First, God says this, disaster is still coming upon Israel and Jerusalem. This cannot be averted. Generation upon generation upon generation of corruption and oppression needs to be dealt with. And then the second thing he says directly to Josiah, verse 19, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself and you've torn your clothes and wept before me, I've also heard you. So what's the result? Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. That's it. That's all God has to say on the matter. You know, 
Israel is going to be judged, and Josiah gets a pass. That's it. That's all God says through his prophetess. Josiah, he's given this promise, and he could just lay back. You know, what difference does it really make for how he lives here and now if he knows everything's just going to fall apart? But Josiah, he doesn't take a back seat. He doesn't check out. He doesn't hear that judgment is coming and say, well, it's all going to burn anyways. No, it's the opposite. He gets all the more engaged. He gets all the more concerned with how to be faithful to God, which in turn changes how he lives and how he leads within his society. You see, in this passage, we discover that a rich encounter of God's mercy and grace, it doesn't just save us, it changes us too. It's not just a good idea, it's a whole new way of living. Turn now to chapter 23. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 3. Then the king and all the elders of uh, Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, And the king went up to the house of the Lord with him and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. You see, it wasn't enough for Josiah to hear the word of the Lord and to keep it for himself. The mercy he received, don't get me wrong, it was deeply, deeply personal, but it wasn't private. It's meant to be public. It's meant for other people too, because a rich and satisfying encounter of God's mercy, it can't be contained. And so Josiah, he gathers the whole nation around and he says to everyone, I'm going to be in a faithful relationship to this God and I'm going to give it my all. And he makes a covenant with boundaries and guidelines and the gist of it being this, I will relate to God on his terms and not my own. I will relate to God on his terms and not my own. And the people join in too because the news of God's mercy and grace always comes to us on its way to somebody else. And even in the darkest hours of a society, God is not content to place limits upon his reach of mercy. Now, true reform is starting to take place. Not just the physical restoration of a temple, but the renewal of hearts. So what is the first act of renewal that Josiah issues to society after this commitment to God has taken place? Josiah starts by removing all the idols and all the false worship that plagued the land of Israel. And that's where the reform begins. And the list is shockingly long and disturbing, covering simple acts like burning incense to false gods, uh, to cult prostitution, and even child sacrifice. And while the details of each of these different idols and false gods matters, something matters significantly more the place that Josiah begins. Look at verse 4 of chapter 23. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. Josiah wants to remove idols from the land. Where does he begin? 
the temple. Do you realize how appalling this is? The temple was the place that was called the house of the Lord. The temple was the place in ancient Israel where God was thought to dwell in a special way where heaven intersected with earth. How on earth did idols end up in the temple? And remember in chapter 22, when Isaiah or Josiah, he wants to start reforming the temple. There is no mention of the idols. He just wants to clean up the temple and he misses the most obvious problem. How can that be so? You see, if we want to be a church, and I hope we are, a church that seeks not just our own well-being, but the well-being of others, the well-being and good of our city, then reform has to start in here before it can take place out there, before it can even be helpful anywhere else. You see, Josiah's work, it's going to extend well beyond the walls of the temple, but it starts there first. And so we have to be willing to be exposed and identify our own shortcomings, corruption, and idols before we dare engage with any serious issues we see in our city's culture. Because what exists out there, in all likelihood, already exists in here. And that understanding, that self-recognition, cultivates the humility required to engage in public dialogue. One of the greatest grievances I've seen of the church in society is the church's failure to take seriously the call for self-examination. We speak without examining our hearts. And it's an affront to people. You see, the presence of idols in God's temple forces ourselves to ask an incredibly uncomfortable question. What idols have we brought into the church? What idols are present in this room? And you might be tempted to say, look, there's no false gods, there's no statues floating around, and, and you're correct. Our idols have just taken different shapes and form. An idol is anything that we give our primary allegiance to in the hopes that it will deliver something for us, whether that's finances, whether that's a sense of self-worth or a sense of purpose and meaning. It's the thing that you pursue above all other things in hope that this thing will deliver something for you. Now, just like the ancient temple, there are obvious things that can be fixed in the church. There are obvious idols, which many of you shared with me on a Facebook poll. Uh, so thank you for doing the work for me. Uh, one that many people mentioned, consumerism. We can see that that can become an idol. Uh, the Enlightenment's view of individualism, this hyper sense of self. Relativism. The pursuit of happiness. And let's not forget what one person pointed out, heliocentrism. And if that joke didn't land, congratulations, you're not very nerdy. But if these idols can be smuggled into the church from our broader culture, and if we think these aims are God's aims, that God just wants you to have everything you want on demand and live a satisfying life where you're the center of the universe, you're going to be sorely disappointed when God doesn't deliver something that was never designed for your good. But more importantly, if we only look to what is obvious with what we can easily identify and see, like Josiah, we're going to miss the real problem. Because the problem with idolatry is that we do not have enough perspective within ourselves to see its pervasiveness in our midst. You might see some of the problems around us and even in yourself, but the problems run deeper still. There are obvious idols in our church. There's obvious idols in our lives. And then there are idols that we do not see in our church. 
and idols that we do not see in our lives. If you truly want to repent of your idols, Josiah shows us how desperately we need objective truth beyond ourselves. We cannot and will not be able to identify them by our own sight alone. We need a perspective from beyond our own place in space and time to expose and challenge us. And so after performing the most thorough and comprehensive reform and renewal that Israel had ever known in her history, what does Josiah do next? What's his second act of renewal? Look at verses 21 through 23. The king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it's written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. This is a shocking little detail. Do you realize that not even King David kept the Passover? Israel had failed to keep a defining uh, festival of their identity. You see, the Passover was to remember God's greatest act of redemption in Israel's life, the exodus, their deliverance out of slavery, their liberation. And it was a festival to deal annually with their sins as a nation, to usher in God's forgiveness. You know, lambs were sacrificed. You know, blood was spilt. Sins were washed away. And this festival was meant to define who they are. And it hadn't been kept for hundreds of years, actually never since Israel had a king. But all this has changed for Israel under Josiah's reign. And it would be easy to look at this passage and conclude this. Josiah and the nation, they were convicted of their idolatry and their complicity in sin. And they repented and they removed all the idols from the land. And having done that, they're now worthy of atonement. They're now worthy of forgiveness. But that is a far cry from the truth. Josiah reestablishes the Passover, not because Israel suddenly is worthy of keeping the festival, but because Israel, despite her thorough repentance, needs the Passover. Repentance only opens us up to God. It doesn't warrant forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't deserved just because someone repents. It's a gift. Josiah understands that Israel still needs atonement. Israel still needs her sins forgiven. And so Josiah is actually reclaiming the purpose of the Passover. God doesn't forgive because we've repented enough or done good or deserve it. God forgives because he is merciful. That's it. God forgives because he's merciful. God offers us atonement, a way of dealing with our sins, because he wants to be in a life-giving relationship with the world. And so through Josiah's reign, we see a movement of reform and renewal like never before. He is the best of the best of the kings. And we might even think things are going to turn around. Society's joining in. Systems are actually changing. But then at the end of chapter 23, Josiah gets caught up in an international conflict between Egypt and Assyria, and he's killed. And then shortly after his death, everything falls apart, and Israel never has a good king again, and then they go into exile. Doesn't it make you wonder, what was the point? If everything you did in your life 
made no difference in the world whatsoever, would you still do it? If everything you did was going to be undone, would you still do it? Now, some in this room may say, yes, I'd still try to make the difference. I'd still try to to live the way I've always lived. And you might not know exactly why, maybe for a sense of purpose or meaning, but you'd keep doing it. But some of us, uh, if we're honest, no. We wouldn't keep doing it. If it's all going to be undone anyways and ultimately forgotten, what's the point? And so rather than sink into nihilism, we turn to hedonism and we enjoy life and all that it has to offer. We just draw our circle smaller. You know, care for those around you. Be a good person. Make the most of what you've been given and enjoy all that you can. That's the most you can expect out of life. So why did Josiah do it? Well, he, he wasn't seeking to find life's purpose. That's not mentioned anywhere in this passage. And he didn't seem to draw his circle smaller. Actually, he got all the more engaged in society knowing that it was all going to fall apart. So why did he do it? Josiah knew this truth. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And when that truth gets into your soul, you can't stay put. Josiah knew that even though God was going to come to judge the nation of Israel, God's ultimate purpose and desire is to show mercy. And because of this experience and hope of mercy, Josiah did everything he could to use his life to demonstrate the mercy of God. And what was the result? What was the result of Josiah's faithfulness? The clearest picture of Jesus in all of Kings. Like Josiah, Jesus reforms the temple, but Jesus does away with the brick and stone altogether. Cosmetic touch-ups won't do. Jesus recreates hearts and souls and minds, and he remakes the people of God into the temple of God's spirit. And in this new temple, like Josiah, God's people rediscover the law and the prophetic voice in an entirely new way. But Jesus, he's fulfilled all the requirements of the law. And we discover that Jesus was the voice speaking through all of the prophets for all of the centuries. And so the law and the prophets in the new temple of God point us to Jesus. And so when you become a follower of Jesus, when you become a part of his body, you discover that voice you've been desiring to find, that objective truth that you need to speak into your circumstances, the truth outside of ourselves that can expose the idols we don't see and challenge and even change us. Because the truth doesn't remain outside of us but has come to dwell with us. But more importantly, like Josiah, Jesus reclaims the purpose of the Passover. You see, Jesus, he didn't just... uh, reinstate the Passover. He became the Passover lamb. He's the one who sacrificed to make atonement for sin. He's the one who has made God's forgiveness available for all. And the mystery mystery of the cross is that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And when that truth gets into your soul, you can't stay put. You can't. Let's end where we began. Some have been calling 2016 the worst year ever. 
We've seen political shifts that are disconcerting, injustice in our neighbors, people being oppressed, terrorist attacks, Aleppo, refugees. And when the West is careening into moral relativism, when politicians and subgroups of Christians are using Scripture sometimes in ways that undermine the very things Scripture teach, when idols have been brought into the church and undermine the church's public witness, even if the entire world falls apart around us, even if all we do in our lives will have no significant impact on the city or in society or in history, our faithfulness still matters. Because like Josiah, it can reveal the mercy of Christ to others. Like Josiah, your life can be a glimpse of the mercy of Christ. Even if we change nothing, our lives can point to the ultimate source of renewal. Because when we understand Christ's mercy, we also discover what God's true intent of judgment is. God doesn't judge for the sake of destruction, but for the sake of bringing about a new world. And that's the promise of the advent of Christ. See, Josiah died and everything fell apart. But when Jesus died, everything started to be remade. We're given the promise that God is going to ultimately establish a new heavens and a new earth. And that when Jesus is Lord, there will be no more tears, no more suffering. That injustice will be met with justice. That oppression will be met with liberation. That all things will be made new. Sin will be done away with and death will be no more. That is our hope in Christ. And if you're faithful to him, you can be a glimpse of that hope, no matter what happens in the world. So when it seems like our world is only getting darker, for some of us, we need to pray, come Lord Jesus, come. For some of us, we need to pray that for the first time. Because maybe you've had no hope. Maybe your optimism is depleted. Maybe you are worried about the world. And the Christian hope, it doesn't make us get more disengaged from the world while we wait for some pie-in-the-sky reality. It actually re-anchors us in the world all the more as we wait for the world to be remade in Christ. So maybe you need to pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We don't lose hope because the best will come. And between now and then, we can live in such a way that makes the mercy of God known to the world around us. And it's joyous, good 